Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 3.15, Slave Codes. Welcome back. Last episode, we spent our time getting Georgia up and onto its feet. With Georgia now joining the fray, the colonies are essentially in the same position they are going to be in when the revolution comes. With that, we are about to shift our focus here. To this point, this show has mostly been an exercise in moving from one colony to another, as they each had extremely distinct founding histories. They were largely completely independent operations that remained autonomous of each other, especially as you moved outside their immediate regions. This week, however, I want to begin looking at the colonies more as a whole. Rather than focus solely on, say, New England or the Chesapeake, we are going to look at the entirety of the North American British colonies. After Queen Anne's War, the colonies entered a period of relative peace. For nearly 30 years, the colonies would grow economically, in population, and would develop culturally. These are topics that we talked about in some length back in episode 3.9. Over the course of the next several episodes, we are going to focus on this growth and just how it would change what it meant to be a colonist. Beginning this week, we are going to dive into a series of three episodes where I'm going to examine the development and expansion of slavery. Slavery has been a part of our story since 1619. However, it really is not until the tail end of the 17th century, and especially moving into the 18th century, that the institution of slavery in the North American British colonies would really begin to take shape. This week, we are going to focus our attention on the development of slave codes throughout the colonies. We are then going to shift our focus and look at questions regarding the morality of slavery and what shape they took at the time. These codes would come to codify the daily existence for millions of people and would become a defining element of the American political story moving forward. Well, slavery existed in the colonies as far back as 1619, when African slaves were first imported from the Caribbean. It was not until the latter part of the 17th century and into the 18th century that the institution of slavery in the colonies would really begin to take form. During those early years of slavery, what emerged was often more akin to involuntary indentured servitude rather than what we will see emerge less than a century later. During those early years, once freed, once the slave completed their terms, the now former slave would become a freeman with legal rights that were actually enforced. In one of the more famous examples, you have Anthony Johnson, a freeman who owned a 250-acre tobacco plot, who himself owned a single slave. When a white neighbor attempted to steal his slave, Johnson sued and was able to recover. The Virginia courts sided with Johnson and ruled in his favor. This is important for several reasons. It gets to the fact that the Virginia courts upheld the rights of a black man over that of a white man. Beyond that, however, there is a broader statement here about race relations at the time. In 1655, when Johnson filed his initial suit, there was yet to be any kind of slave codes in place, because there was really not a need for them yet. Slavery, well present, was not a common occurrence in the colonies during the majority of the 17th century. With a relatively small population of slaves within the colony, 
there was little need for the colonial governments to set up any kind of system to rein in the slaves. As the slave population grew, however, white colonists grew increasingly concerned. When the slave population was low, there was little to worry about. Things like slave rebellions were really not that much of a risk. The colonists knew that the numbers simply were not there for the slaves to produce any actual risk to their safety. With the first slaves in 1619 being treated more akin to indentured servants rather than slaves, it takes only a few decades for the transition to occur to turn slavery into a lifetime label. Part of the problem is that indentured servants had very little interest in coming to Virginia. Conditions were terrible, and life expectancy was low. We spent a lot of time during our first season talking about the first half century of life in Virginia. It wasn't great, and it wasn't something that many indentured servants wanted to subject themselves to. Despite this, however, Virginia was now a rapidly growing tobacco producer, a crop that is particularly labor-intensive. The result is that you have a colony with a high labor requirement, and yet a scarce number of workers willing to embrace Virginia's rough conditions. Initially, the transition from Africans being treated more or less as indentured servants, as opposed to slaves, shows as blacks had increasingly lengthy periods of indenture. As the colony continued to struggle to entice white indentured servants to make the journey across the Atlantic, they found that with slaves, there was little need to convince them to come into the colony. They didn't have a choice. By 1670, any kind of illusion that slavery had an expiration date had vanished, as it had by this point become a lifetime brand. Slaves were an easier solution to the labor shortage than trying to find some way to entice more white indentured servants to make the trip. In 1660, as an example, the total population of Virginia was right around 35,000. Of that number, slaves accounted for just 400 of that, or roughly a little over 1% of the population. By 1700, the population had grown to approximately 59,000, with 9,400 slaves. This means that slaves now made up 16% of Virginia's overall population. By 1750, the total population of Virginia had increased to 231,000, with a slave population of 101,500, or nearly 57% of the total population. This growth in slavery is going to come with several effects that would change the relationship, and therefore life, for the slaves living inside of the colony. Note that these numbers are in Virginia alone. In South Carolina, that number was even more dramatic. In 1730, there were 10,000 whites compared to some 20,000 slaves. The emergence of slave codes, therefore, was not something that was really born out of racism necessarily, but was a pragmatic response to the quickly growing slave populations in the colonies. Slave rebellions were an ever-present risk. We are going to spend our entire next episode talking about slave rebellions, so I'm not going to get into the specifics today, though it was more than a theoretical concern. With growing slave populations came increased risk that those slaves would band together and kill their masters. Slave codes, therefore, were not geared at making slaves more productive, nor were they geared necessarily towards managing the daily lives of slaves. 
slave codes rather existed to reduce the risk of rebellion. The individual owner could handle discipline for more minor transgressions. Slave codes were in place to more broadly protect from the risk of an uprising. This follows the increase in population as prior to the population boom of the late 17th century, the number of slaves in the colony had remained low. With so few slaves, the risk of an armed rebellion was essentially zero. Sure, a rogue slave might kill an individual owner, but that could be dealt with easily enough. In 1660, if all 400 slaves rose up against the 34,600 non-slaves in the colony, any kind of revolt would have been quickly suppressed. By the time that you reach 1700, when slaves now made up 16% of the overall population, a rebellion would be a far bloodier affair to put down. By the time 1750 rolls around, the number of slaves in the population would raise serious doubts about whether or not they could put a large-scale rebellion down at all. With the accompanying population boom of slaves came an importation of African culture. When slave populations were small, African culture struggled to gain a noticeable footing. However, with more and more slaves coming into the population, there was a noticeable increase in their culture. As their cultural influences became more and more rooted in the colonies, it made the owners increasingly nervous. Suddenly, you have a growing group of people that can speak in a language that the owners didn't know, practicing strange, unfamiliar rituals. Growth of African cultures made the owners seemingly more aware of the fact that they were holding a large population of people in bondage and the very real risks that accompany that. The question therefore becomes, what do these codes look like in practice? Considering that the main point of the codes was to diminish the chance of slaves rebelling, much of the underlying mechanism of how slave codes sought to do this was to prevent the movement and congregation of slaves in the first place. The first slave codes appear in Virginia and Maryland in 1662. These codes were both laying out that a child of any Englishman born to a slave would inherit his mother's status. This law was in place in order to deal with the situation of white owners having relationships and ultimately children with their slaves. Well, the law did little to control the slave population, it does mark the first time that slavery finds any regulations within the colonies at all. Maryland would go a step further in 1664 and officially state that slavery was a lifetime brand. There would be no escaping it. The most common slave codes throughout the colonies were limitations on how many slaves could gather at a single time off of a plantation. This accomplished a couple of key objectives for the owners. The main train of thought was that if slaves could not gather, it would be that much more difficult for them to form grand conspiracies. Codes often also included provisions that slaves could not leave their plantations without a written pass from their owner. This would further restrict the ability of slaves to move throughout the colony. Beyond keeping the group small, however, it also hampered the spread of information. If there was going to be some kind of an uprising, slaves would struggle to come together to spread the information. If one is trying to lead a secret rebellion, the last thing that they are going to want to do is take conspicuous actions that is going to draw attention to themselves. For slaves, this meant violating the law regarding gatherings. 
with information traveling slower, the owners hoped that they would learn of any plots before anything could be carried out. This worked much better in the Chesapeake than in more urban environments. Plantations were large and spread out, meaning that it was far more practical for a slave owner to keep his slaves from commingling with the slaves on different plantations. In an urban environment, say like in New York, it became far more difficult to limit slave gatherings, despite the best efforts of their owners. We are going to be spending some time looking at urban slavery in New York next time, and then we will later devote an entire episode to slavery in New York in episode 3.17. Slavery, indeed, was not yet something that was limited to just the South. By the time of the American Civil War, there was a clear delineating line where everything to the North was free and everything to the South had legal slavery. However, that is not something that really comes into effect until the 1820s. During the 17th and 18th century, slavery was spread throughout the colonies. Yes, it was much more prevalent in the South. However, it absolutely existed in the northern colonies as well. Slavery even existed in Pennsylvania, a colony made up largely of Quakers, who would later become some of the most vocal abolitionists. There, the codes that were in place were like what we see in Virginia. Serious crimes were punishable by death, while more minor infractions would result in whippings. Like in Virginia, they strictly prohibited slave gatherings of four or more under threat of whipping. Punishments for slave codes came as corporal punishments, generally, again, whippings. As I mentioned a moment ago, there were certain crimes that would bring with them a death sentence. These included rape and attempted rape, as well as conspiring. However, there was a reluctance from colonial governments to punish crimes by slaves with death. Not that the colonial leaders were acting out of empathy, but rather they viewed killing slaves as unjustly interfering with the property rights of the slave's owner. Punishments for slaves who disobeyed their owners, for instance, were not something that was governed by slave codes. Instead, in that situation, it was the individual owner who could levy out any punishment that they deemed fit. This almost always meant physical punishment, as there were really few other options for the owners. Unlike with indentured servants, owners could not add additional time to the period of servitude, as slavery was now a lifetime thing. Owners, for obvious reasons, seldom wanted to punish their slaves in such a way that it would endanger their life, or would in any way interfere with their ability to work. This leads to whippings becoming the primary form of punishment. It is worth noting, however, that when an owner went too far and a slave did die, normally colonial officials would simply look the other way. Well, it would seem to follow that slavery was a practice that was cloaked in racism. In reality, it was often the opposite that was true. Racism was a pragmatic response of the colonial governments that was used to justify the obvious moral questions that come along with slavery. Not that the very process of enslaving Africans was not in and of itself racist, but rather the emergence of racism in the colonies was often used as a method to, on one end, justify the actions of slave owners, and on the other, it was a method of ensuring that poor whites did not form an alliance with the African slaves. Racism would become an important tool in helping form society in such a way that it would reduce the risk posed by the slaves in the colony 
by ensuring that they remained isolated. This is exemplified through the changing attitudes and behavior in the colonies during that period of the rapid expansion of slavery. We had discussed earlier today the story of Anthony Johnson. Johnson never seemed to have any problem speaking his mind to fellow freeholders. Likewise, the courts, at least on appeal, had ruled in his favor over that of a white colonist. Obviously, a single data point does not make for a greater trend. However, it seems far more unlikely that the courts would have sided with Johnson in 1700, and all but impossible that the same decision would have been reached by the time that 1750 rolls around. None of this is to say that racism did not exist in the colony when Johnson filed his suit, but that it expanded massively as the population of slaves quickly grew. I will warn against hanging too tightly to the idea that Johnson alone proves that colonial Virginia prior to 1670 had no racism. Johnson really is just a single data point in a much more complex system. However, he does make for a good example. By the time that he won his suit, we are already seeing periods of indenture for slaves increase to longer and longer lengths until ultimately hitting that point where they were for life. Likewise, the court's decision regarding Johnson came down just a few years before we began seeing increasingly repressive laws passed, both in the form of slave codes and laws that were designed to limit the rights of free blacks. To some degree, it was racism that allowed farmers to justify their actions towards the slaves. Beyond the obvious question over the morality of enslaving a person that likely entered into the recesses of the owner's minds, there was the day-to-day -day treatment of the slaves to consider as well. As we discussed a moment ago, corporal punishment was the most common punishment used. From simply a practical standpoint, the planters had little else they could do to punish a wayward slave. However, to defend their actions and their brutality against the slaves, the argument became that the Africans, as a whole, were something less than fully human. They were able to use this as logical justification for the increasingly brutal treatments being practiced to control the slave populations. With growing slave populations came that increased risk of slaves rising up in rebellion. Now, we have spent a good deal of our episode today talking about how, until roughly the middle part of the 18th century, slaves do not seem to have the numbers by themselves to lead a successful uprising. However, what would happen if the African slaves did not have to rely on only those within their own group? For the wealthy colonists in Virginia, there was genuine concern that the slaves could build an alliance with the poor white farmers. In 1680, the Virginia Assembly passed legislation that made punching a white person a crime punishable by 30 lashes. Unsurprisingly, no law was passed that legislated what the penalty was for punching a black man. What this law did, and did effectively, is that it drove a wedge between the poor white planters and the slave class. Poor whites could exercise their dominance over black slaves with impunity. The Virginia legislature, of course, had cause for concern. We are only four years past the end of Bacon's Rebellion. There are still deep rifts within the society. Though things got better following Bacon's Rebellion, there was still very serious wealth inequality in the colony. The bottom third of whites in Virginia were nearly destitute, 
while huge amounts of land were now held in the hands of a select few at the very top. For the poor white farmers, slaves were something of a natural ally. Both groups had very different reasons that they hated the upper classes. But certainly, both groups had their reasons to be angry and hated the upper classes. Throughout the 1700s, we will see other efforts by the Virginia Assembly to further divide whites and blacks. In 1705, there was a prohibition against interracial marriage put into place. Acts against free blacks in the colony became more common and increasingly restrictive. After 1691, if an owner freed a slave, the law also required them to pay to ship that slave back out of the colony. Free blacks saw laws passing restricting their rights of gun ownership, their ability to vote and to hold office, and to employ white servants. Free blacks suddenly were paying higher taxes than whites and were subjected to harsher punishments for similar crimes. Freed blacks also always risked the very real threat of being kidnapped and sold back into slavery, something that was enough of a risk that it caused the family of Anthony Johnson to leave Virginia for their own safety. The question of the origins of racism in the future United States has been a popular topic for historians for years. What has emerged is a debate over the place of racism in the colonial history of the United States. As posed a few minutes ago, the question of if racism results from slavery, or if the opposite is true, that slavery is born out of racism, is one of the most researched questions in the colonial era. Now, admittedly, I do not want to go slipping down that slope because it does little to change our story. Using racism would be an important tool for colonial administrations as it allowed for not only a justification, but it provided the necessary differentiation between the slaves and their potential allies in the poor whites. Therefore, racism as an actual policy was important in helping to better dictate the actions of the colonists and to help prevent a greater rebellion from forming. Certainly, the Virginia colonists did not invent racism. However, as you can see, it was something that was put to use in order to isolate the slave population from the white population. Through the laws passed, it made it far more unlikely that poor whites would form an alliance with the slaves in order to overthrow the entire system. While this example is specific to Virginia, the growth of slavery was not something exclusively found in any single colony in North America, nor even in any region. Slavery was systemic. It was everywhere. It is likewise critical to understand that there were absolutely those, even in 1700, who absolutely abhorred the practice. For as long as there has been African slavery in the colonies, there were those who made strong moral rebukes regarding the growing institution. One of the earliest voices against slavery emerged from Judge Samuel Sewell in Massachusetts. If you are sitting there saying, Hey, I know that name. You are correct. Samuel Sewell is one of the judges during the Salem witchcraft trials and would, later in his life, come to regret his actions during those very trials. Sewell himself was an ardent abolitionist and in 1700 would publish The Selling of Joseph, the earliest known abolitionist pamphlet published in what would become the United States. Sewell first published on June 24, 1700 and would use religious arguments to state that slavery was morally wrong. 
Ultimately, the selling of Joseph would not end up being a terribly popular or well-read work in its own time. It does, however, provide us today with an interesting snapshot of that moment in time. Sewell's argument was based on the fact that if all men were descendants from Adam, then slaves shared the same freedoms as white people. He argued that slaves therefore made poor servants, as they were always wishing to return to their natural state of freedom. Sewell goes further and argues that the very process of denying slaves that freedom was, in fact, a sin being committed by the owners. Slavery in Boston was substantially less than what we see down in the South. In 1700, there were about 400 slaves in the colony, which made up about 6% of the overall population of the city. So, while not a large population, they were not a completely insignificant number either. Sewell's arguments, however, did note that he did not believe that whites and blacks could ever successfully live amongst each other. Sewell felt that blacks lacked the ability to assimilate fully into New England society. And furthermore, he, nor anybody in Massachusetts, was terribly eager to do something like arm the black population in the colony. Sewell was likewise not without his detractors. Sewell's biggest detractor was John Saffin. If any of you out there are interested in colonial poetry, Saffin is amongst the biggest of his era. He was also vehemently opposed to Sewell's The Selling of Joseph. Saffin was a known slave owner, and by the time he was fighting against Sewell, he was now a man of 70. Once a more dedicated Puritan, after living through some unquestionably hard times, he seems to have drifted away from those positions over the years. Saffin argued from a position that the powerful should remain powerful, while the weak should remain weak. He was a supporter of the then-existing power dynamics that existed inside of Massachusetts. Unfortunately for Sewell, Saffin's position proved to be more widely accepted in the colony. This showed that, at the very least, at the dawn of the 18th century, the colony lacked any deep objections to slavery. Sewell's efforts largely came to naught. Despite some attempts to lessen the need for slaves by using more indentured servants, requests of this nature generally went nowhere. Just as elsewhere in the colonies, Massachusetts had laws that specifically affected only the black population. This included standard provisions against intermarriage, gun ownership, as well as setting curfews. Massachusetts, which in the future will become one of the core locations for the abolitionist movement, would not see rising anti-slavery sentiment begin to creep in until the 1750s. Through a series of court cases during the early 1780s, slavery in the now state of Massachusetts would become all but illegal. Interestingly enough, though slavery now ceased to exist within Massachusetts, it was not officially made illegal until the passage of the 13th Amendment in 1865. Slavery would, over the course of the 18th century, become a defining element of the United States, both in terms of culture and economics. By the turn of the 17th century, slavery would account for the single largest part of the Virginia economy, even outvaluing the land itself. These rapid increases to slave and free black populations kept the colonists in constant fear of slave uprisings. It was through the use of slave codes that colonial governments tried to at least control the risk of slave uprisings from happening. Racism was likewise used as a tool 
to ensure that the population of both the slaves and the freed blacks remained isolated. It would have been a catastrophe for the planter class if the poor whites had allied with the slaves, a partnership that made enough sense to make the planters perpetually nervous. The risk of slave uprisings was likewise not a hypothetical risk either. They were a genuine threat that haunted the colonists, especially in places where the slave population now made up large portions of the overall populations of those colonies. Next time, we are going to spend our time looking at what happens when the fears of the colonists are realized and slaves do rebel. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we examine 18th century slave rebellions.